Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Economic is a very big issue in and of itself, and there are many ways to tackle it from a Jewish perspective. Uh, as Shui said, there's a whole book about it, and there, there are other books and articles on this issue. Uh, not enough, in my opinion. I think what happened is that for 2,000 years, we did not have a state. Or we, all we had was small communities. So there are many, we did develop many laws of charity or financial issues inside the community, but not much of macroeconomic thinking, or think about society and economics in the broader sense. And now it's coming back to life. Uh, when we have a Jewish state and we have other opportunities to actually influence public policy in other countries, as a, not us as a nation, just people have these uh, things. And, and I believe that Judaism, like Shmuel said in the introduction, can inspire and inform many walks of life. So what I'd like to do today, uh, we'll introduce a few basic concepts in a, is anyone here an economist by training or background? I used to be an academic economist. Okay. Um, so if I'm wrong, you'll correct me in some things. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm probably pretty much out of date at this point. Uh, no, we're going to like the 18th century now, so okay. you'll, uh, you'll be fine. Well, that's fine. That was my field. Um, so we'll introduce like briefly two basic concepts for economic thinking. Uh, and then we'll think about the tension between equality and freedom, and or what people used to call uh, social justice in its different shapes and forms, different policy tools. And we'll tackle each one of them, both from its economic lens or angle, and from a Jewish source or something that, that relates to that. Uh, I don't promise answers at the end of the, end of the evening. It's more of like presenting the, the issue and uh, you'll see at the end of the day, there is no real economic solution or mathematical solution. At the end of the day, it's, it's a, a question of values and what, what you believe in. Um, there's no one clear formula that, that will solve the problem. Um, okay, should we start? Good, so the first uh, thing we need to, the most basic concept in economics, I'm talking about like the modern economic theory. There are, there are competing theories, but all of them pretty much disappeared. In the, there's one ruling uh, theory. Um, the basic concept is utility. Uh, it was founded by two philosophers. One was uh, John Stuart Mill, the other one was uh, Jeremy Bentham, two British philosophers. They did not do it for economics. They were not economists by, by training or that was in their field. Uh, but then economists took it. So he defines utility as pleasure alongside the absence of pain. Very simple, okay? If something, something gives you pleasure and doesn't cause you pain, then you get utility out of it. Utility can be measured in units or, 
because once you have it as a number, then you can start doing all the formulas and think about it and do whatever you want with it mathematically. Now, the one thing to remember about it, at the bottom, utility is an ordinal and not cardinal measurement, means that utility is subjective, it's personal, okay? I cannot trade utility like uh, this cup of water is worth 10 units of utility, maybe I'll give it to you and give me your 10, it doesn't work this way. It's, it's like, uh, it's about priorities for a human being. So this cup is worth less to me than this mouse, for example, because this gives me more utility, but it's my letter of, of measurement. Okay, is it clear? Um, can you think of things that give you utility in this, in this sense? That, uh, what, what kind of things would be considered as uh, utility generating? Any yeah. kind of things. For instance, like material things? Books. Books, okay. Car, um, iPhone. Well, f yeah, food is the is the first one. Are there immaterial things that can be considered as utility generating? Huh? Friendship. Friendship. Sleep. Sleep. Okay. Actually, that's a big question. How do you put all things into the theory? Because food I can measure, books I can measure, iPhone I can measure what it's worth. How do you measure friendship? How do you price that? Like how do you, is there a marketplace for friendships? Um, that, that's one of the biggest challenges of, the, of this uh, theory. The other thing is rationality. Uh, you know this guy? Professor Saad Uman? He's an Israeli mathematician. He won the Nobel Prize eight years ago or nine years ago for economics. You know, he wanted for game theory, and the way he defines rationality is that a rational action is an action that will achieve the best possible, the, sorry, it's a typo, the, possible, the best possible result for the actor given its knowledge constraints. Meaning, if I need to buy, I don't need, I, I want to buy an apple, because it will give me utility. Uh, so the rational act would be to buy it. And let's say it costs $2, then I buy it for $2. Uh, if I know that, that the store nearby sells apples for $1, then this act is not rational. Because I could have made, gained the same utility for less money. But if I don't know, because I didn't check, then it is rational, okay? So we don't expect people to know everything, but given what they know, we expect people to work in a rational manner. Um, now, what do you think? People work like that, in fact? Generally, yes. Do you like to think of yourself as, as rational human beings? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Well, you're probably not. And not, not to offend any of you. None of us is really rational. This was proven uh, by another Israeli who won the Nobel Prize uh, a bit before Uman, like two years before him, uh, Daniel Kahneman. And he shows, that that's a whole different story. I won't go into all of that. But he showed through many, many experiments with different types of people, different groups, that people don't really behave rationally. You know, one example for, uh, would be uh, th that different kinds of uh, biases. Like if, if I present the same amount as, as a loss or as a the abstain of profit, like if I tell you I will take you $30 or the same action will cause you not to make a profit of $30, then 
you would actually prefer the second uh, action, even though rationally it doesn't make any sense. It, it's exactly the same. So there are many examples uh, like this, but that's a whole different session, maybe next year, okay? So these are the, the two basic concepts. Now, when we talk about social justice, justice is usually a concept that we use in the context of other people. Obviously, we want justice for ourselves. The challenge is how we create justice for other people, okay? Which brings us to altruism, uh, which is an act that yields utility for a different actor than the actor which invested its resources in, resources in it. So if I now give you $10 as, as charity or as a free loan or whatever, then I lose utility, I lose my own benefit, and I give you benefit. And rationally, that's not something I'm supposed to do, right? So why do people do things like that? What's the explanation? I mean, I'm sure all of us, all of you did outwaste things in your life. You know people who do outwaste things. Because they have a conscience. They have a conscience, okay. But that doesn't fit into the formulas, so economists don't know how to, <laughs> how to work with that. Okay, so, so what? So you have a conscience and it, it, it forces you to do things that are not rational? Like, um, it makes you do things that some people may not think may be rational because you have a heart and you're willing to part with something that you could just as well keep for yourself that are willing to give away um, because of kindness, which goes along with the consciousness. Okay. What else? Uh, excuse me, Mark. Um, yeah. Is it right to say at the end of the last sentence or could I say, with specific loss for the investor, instead of without any direct gain? If you say uh, without any direct gain, does it mean that you were experiencing loss? Right, right. That, yeah, you can say that it's, it's a loss. If, if you don't lose anything, then it's not an altruist act. Then you didn't, you you didn't really do anything. I mean... Uh, yeah, we're talking about an act that's... You know, in, in Alakha, there's a rule that says, uh, meaning that if you have... Let's say you finish doing your, your, your laundry. Okay, you don't need those water anymore, and, and you just pour it away, and you know that other people might need them to maybe water their garden, or maybe do laundry in the same water. Or something. It's not going to cost you anything. Just let other people use what you don't need anymore. If you don't do that, that's, that's dumb. That, that's actually being evil. That's not... Uh, and you're not allowed to do that. So that's really without any loss. But an, an altruist act is something that you do lose something. Um, so yes, it's, uh, which makes the question even more severe. Like people, why are people willing to lose something for other people without gaining something directly? Like uh, that if I give you charity, you're not going to return any kind of favor. You're not going to love me more than you do. Maybe it's matan basete, like I give you without you knowing that I gave it. Like what's... Uh, Okay. So maybe we, we do it to to feel better, or to. I, I'm I'm gonna leave this as a question, but think about it. That uh, to some extent doesn't make sense that we actually help other people when we don't have to. I'm not saying that, that we should stop doing this. Okay, that's not the message of, of of today. I'm just saying that it's not self-evident that we do this. Okay. Uh, so now I want to go into explaining a bit of how 
economic thinking works, and then we can start talking about how social justice thinking works. So this is a field next to my house, uh, going up on fire. That's actually not from the recent Gaza event, that, that was before. But this is how it looks pretty much our area uh, these times. And if you have a fire, there are two, let's say someone started a fire and God forbid it, didn't, it burnt like the neighbor's field. Okay, uh, that's a sugiya from the Talmud, we'll get to it in a minute. Someone lighted a fire and because of the wind or something, it expanded to the neighbor's field. There are two ways to look at this. If you're an accountant, you will count the, the direct damage that was done to the field and you say you need to pay the damage. If you're an economist that look, look at society from 30,000 feet, you add a few more ingredients to the cost. You'll say it's not only the, the cost of the property that was lost, but also the cost of, of safekeeping, of guarding the field, and the cost of alternative uses. We'll see what it means in a minute, okay? So if, if I had to keep to use some measurements to prevent the fire, uh, that's also a loss of society because I could, could have used those resources to do something else and not put fences or things like that. Now, an example this, to look at this, this is the budget of the Israeli Ministry of Defense, okay, about the difference between 51 to 60 is the secret services. Like, uh, that's like 9 billion shekels that no, nobody really knows what they do with them, we just know that they were spent on security. That's the official line in the Israeli government budget on security, that's the national expense. But from economic point of view, the expense is much higher. I mean, the cost of security in Israel is about 30% more than that. Uh, why is that? Because when you look at, at, the, at the military, it's not just the cost of the salaries to soldiers or the weapons or the direct cost. It's also you have army bases, they take pieces of land that could have been used for housing or for natural reserves or for other things. Yeah, people use time to be there. Uh, it, it creates other external effects that have costs that are not on the budget. You, you'll never see them on the financial reports of the government, but are part of the cost that, that we pay. For example, young people in Israel need to volunteer for three years to the army, so they don't work for three years, they don't make a degree, they don't pay taxes for th those three years, so there are other kinds of losses. So, first of all, is, is, this, is this clear, like the difference between accounting and, and economics? Okay, because that's very important for understanding the, the theory of justice. Because when we look at, at the cost of doing justice, it's not just the money that you give out to the poor person. It's also the whole mechanism that you need to keep in place to actually do that, okay? Now, there's a, the, the concept of, of Baldashchit, I guess you've heard about it maybe? Baldashchit means that, uh, this is a verse from, from the Torah that says, that if you put a siege on a city, <coughs> you're not allowed to cut down the trees around it. Lot ashchit et Lashchit is to corrupt or to destroy uh, aimlessly. Just to corrupt for the sake of corruption or destroy for the sake of, of, of destruction. Now, usually this is being used in the context, in the context of uh, uh, preserving our environment or preserving the nature and making sure that we don't take more than what we need. Uh, things like that. Uh, I want to apply it to, to the economic field and actually use this as a, 
propose this as a justification for trying to be efficient as we can. Okay, so we said that things have external costs, and if you do things that are inefficient, we're actually wasting resources without any justification. We could have done this in a better way. So if, if Israel security costs 89 billion shekels, and there is a way to make it cost less, 80 billion shekels, then that's Baltashkit, because we're wasting resources that we, sh we could have used for other things. Again, from, from the societal point of view, not, not, not only individual, okay? Okay, now we're going back to the sugya itself. Okay, this is the first Jewish economic sugya that we're going to look at. So this is a part of the Talmud that says that if you have people living in two stories, and you, do an, you, know, you have an oven you, that you cook on it, you need to take some measurements uh, of safekeeping, of making sure that the fire won't go to the floor uh, above you, okay? Plaster floor means like a fire-resistant floor to some extent. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, what's, what, what's the cost of, of, of this guarding? Um, so huh? building materials above your head. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if the materials that you have to use to fireproof more expensive than the ones. Usually they're more expensive. Let's think about our homes, okay? This, this was like 2,000 years ago. Let's think. I mean, there is a way to get 100% fireproof neighborhoods, right? We can do that technologically. We can put fire alarms in every, every meter and put uh, sprinklers every two meters and have a fire truck next to every building that will stay there for the whole night and there won't be any fires. I can assure you. Like, uh, I don't know if you heard, in Israel we had a huge disaster two weeks ago uh, in Beitar Elit. You heard about it? Um, Beitar Elit, it, it's a Haredi city outside Jerusalem. A certain light bulb, that, which was not safe enough, uh, fell on the floor of the children's room, and two children died in the fire. It was really horrible, uh, about two weeks ago. Now, this could have been prevented. If, if with enough technology, or if we, if half the population would be working as, as firefighters, there, there won't be any such events. Why don't we do this? What, what's the reason we're not taking such measurements? Even, even though we know the cost is that some people are going to die. What's the reason? We could be doing something else with those resources. Right, such as? Technology, education, healthcare. Hospitals, right? We can do everything. We have limited resources. So if we put a fire truck next to every building, it means that we won't have any resources left for hospitals or for you know, even just having nice community gardens or uh, theaters or things that are not going to save anybody's life, but we, we still think they are important enough to give up on a few fire trucks or give up on a few garden measurements uh, and take the risk. So this two guys exactly about that. And now I want to show you how it looks like in terms of numbers. This is the cost of safekeeping, okay? Just as an example, it's not really. If you don't do anything, you don't use any fireproof materials, doesn't cost you anything, okay? If you use mediocre materials, it costs you 10 shekels, dollars, whatever. If you use better materials, it's 20. If you use the best security, it's 30, okay? That's the cost of guarding from, uh, <coughs> from the fire. Now, this number, is, is the damage that happens. 
it's actually, I'm not going to go into the all the mathematics, it's the chance of damage being uh, caused multiplied by the, by the cost of the damage, okay? But there's a way to, to calculate uh, projected future damage. So it's uh, 100, and you see that as we invest more in safekeeping, what happens to the, to the, to the damage? It goes down, because if you have better measurements, the chances for an accident are lower. lower. So what's this number, the bold one? Should be easy. It, it's just taking this number and this one together, that's 70, okay? 45 plus 20 is 65. This is the total cost for society, not for the person. This is the resources we lose for keeping ourselves safe from fire. So if you were the Minister of Treasury or Finance or something like that, which option would you choose? Like which is the best option from the point of view of society? Medium? Let's do this. Who says minimal? Raise your hand. No one. Low? No one. Medium? And high? Why, why did you choose minimum? 65, okay? Because at a certain point, what happens is that you invest too much in, in uh, safety measurements, then yes, the damage or the, the chances for damage are low, but the cost of the measurements themselves are so, is so high that the to total cost is, uh, is more. I'll try to explain this with another allegory. You may not recognize this guy. He's the, he's the Israeli who won uh, the bronze medal in the Olympics about 10 years ago in judo, before it became a very common thing that Israel won, wins those medals. His name is Owen Smadja. So, and then after he won the bronze, bronze medal, he actually quit. Uh, and then he started doing like, education for kids and like, teaching kids how to do judo. And the question is, why didn't he continue all the way to the gold medal? And do you have any, any, any idea why, why stop at a certain point and, and not continue? That's it. It took you uh, 10 years to get to the bronze medal. Then another two or three should be for gold, no? What's... Is it so? Okay. The reason is that there's uh, what it says in the top, diminishing marginal utility. Uh, the cost of making another progress uh, is always higher than making, the cost of taking another step forward is always higher than the, the cost of the previous step, okay? Meaning that to get from bronze to metal would cost him a lot more than, than, than it cost him to go from nothing to bronze. Okay, it's not just, uh, just keep it the same way. It gets harder and harder the, the, more, the more you make progress. So the same goes with safekeeping. The, the more you invest in safekeeping, the less you actually get in return in terms of safety, which may seem like a paradox, but uh, at the end of the day, there's a limit to how much we can protect ourselves. And it just becomes, uh, the protection itself becomes too costly. And, and you just have to take some sort of a risk, okay? Uh, and as I said, yes, this is the right answer. And now we get to efficiency and justice. With this background, so first, are there any questions? Are you with me? Is this clear to this point? Yes? I'll take this as a yes. yes. Okay. Uh, another question is, 
if we have a social problem gap issue, solving it will cost us resources. And the question is, what's the optimal solution? Uh, in a few cases, as we're about to see. Okay. So there are three approaches for uh, equality and justice, or equality and freedom. One is equality of outcomes, which you may know as communism or some very totalitarian regimes. That means that let's say that at the end of the day, no matter what, we should we should all have the same amount of resources, roughly speaking. So if you made $100 and I made 80 then at the end of the day or the month of the year, the government, government will come and take $10 from you and give it to me, so we'll both be on, on 90 Okay? Sound reasonable? Maybe. Uh, that's a Soviet Union and, and China to some extent, up to until 20 years ago. That's what they try to do, in a way. The kibbutzim in Israel. You know the kibbutzim? So everybody put all the income in one shared kupa and then they distribute it equally between everybody else. So the outcome, eventually, is the same for everybody. The other type of equality is equality of opportunities, which is more like a free market that says uh, the outcomes can be different because people have different talents and different motivations and different you know, like luck, and you know, we can't control everything. But we're obligated, as a society, to give everybody an equal opportunity. So uh, give everybody decent education, give everybody decent access to higher education or to healthcare or to transportation, whatever they need to at least get into the race. Then if they succeeded or not, that's up to them what they do with their lives. Okay? But this also requires investment of resources. We need to invest in a public education system and in, in other things. The third approach is actually the opposite of the first one, which says the single most important thing is freedom and private property. Uh, the state, the government, society has no right, no justification to take my resources and give them so to someone else. They can take my taxes to build a road or to build you know, some, the public space or uh, infrastructures, things like that, to have a court system, those, those uh, things, but they're not allowed to take my resources and my money to support someone else. If I want to give them charity, I will give them. But no one can, no one can force me to, to do that. So that's, I would say, that's the far end of libertarianism or like uh, radical free market approaches. Okay? Okay. Now, when we talk about justice, one of the main ideas comes come from this person, John Rawls, and he, he said the following, okay? Let's say we have two people, Ruben and Shimon or Paul and Simon, these are generic names that in philosophy, like when you want to talk about two people, they call them Paul and Simon all the time. That's, I don't know why, that's, uh, and in Hebrew it's Ruven Shimon. Just two people, okay? He says there's like a veil of ignorance. So these are two souls in the world of souls before they come to earth, okay? Up there, they don't know what's going to happen with them because they leave behind a veil of ignorance. Like, it's, it's an allegory, yes? Like when we, before we come to this world, we don't know if we're going to be rich or poor, healthy, unhealthy. We have no idea. Now, in order to overcome this, I mean, he's the, the reason he says that we should have some sort of social justice is that we don't know what's going to happen. So Ruben and Shimon sort of like sign an agreement like a, between them, like, a, it's like, like an insurance policy. So Shimon tells to Ruben, you know, Ruben, 
if you are born poor and I'm, I'm born wealthy, I'm going to give you some of my share to ease your pain. Only if you agree to do the same for me. So if, you are, if you're wealthy and I'm poor, you give it to me. Sounds like a fair deal, right? So that's what I get, that the poor, poor person will give him or the other way around. This is the philosophical justification for actually supporting each other. Because we don't really know what's going to happen with us. So we do like a social ins insurance for all of ourselves. And that's why we're allowed to actually take resources from one another to, to support society. Uh, now there are four ma major problems with that. When you take money from people and redistribute it to other people for free to support the situation, you create a problem. So this sugiya says, uh, no, I'll just try to summarize it. So let's say, what's your name? Nina. Nina? And your name? Myra. Myra and? Sharon. Sharon. Okay. Let's say that both Sharon and Myra went to Nina. Nina is some sort of a bank. She's like the communal safekeeper. And they gave her a, de a deposit. Okay? Uh, let's say, N N Myra, you gave $100 and you gave $200. Okay? For the deposit. After two years, nobody really remembers what went on. And then Mira says, oh, I also gave $200. We both gave $200. And, but Nina has only 300 in her deposit box. What is she, is she supposed to do? Before reading this, what, what would you do? You, you're the judge. Now count those two women, and they say, both of them say that they gave 200. It's obvious that one of them is lying, because there's only 300 in the deposit box. What do you do? Nina's coming to you as the judge and asking you what, what should I do with the money? Like, uh... Excuse me. Take a polygraph test. <laughs> well, before polygraphs, okay. <laughs> okay, split it in half, one option. Other options? Do we have records? No, it's 2,000 years ago. Like the, 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 no records, nothing. Split it in half. Other solutions? I'm not in agreement with that. I gave $200. But she says she also gave 200 I'm the judge. I have no idea. I have no way to determine who won, which, which of you is, uh, is right. Why don't you ask the stakeholder? What? Why don't you ask the stakeholder? Who is the stakeholder? The person that received the deposit. She says she will split it half and half. The so she got the same from both. She remember. No, she doesn't remember. No, no one has any proof of what happened. We know for sure that one of them is lying because in the deposit box we have only 300 and not 400. Well, no one has any proof that you split it out. That's right. No. Okay. Actually, this doesn't appear in the Talmud, what you said. That's interesting. <laughs> the two opinions in the Talmud are uh, one, that you give each one of them 100. Because we know for sure that at least each one of them gave 100, right? And then you give the other 100. You give each one of them 100. This way you're, you did the minimum. <coughs> the other 100, you keep, it says in the Talmud, until, until Eliyahu comes. The prophet Eliyahu, when, when the Mashiach comes, he will tell you with his Holy Spirit that Mara is lying and, for, for, and Sharon is right. She, she will keep it. Until the Mashiach comes, she keeps it. So the stakeholder. Yeah. yeah. But, but for deposits, she doesn't use it. 
Yeah, yeah, no, not for you. Yes, just until the Mashiach comes and tells us what's, what's the right uh, value. I'm not uh, well, you, sh you should have thought about it before, yeah. <laughs> okay, what's, what's the loss here? What's, uh, what's the problem here? The two problems. Is it, is it a just solution? Partially. Well, it's just for her, because she only gave $100. She gets her 100 back. It's not just But what will stop Myra <laughs> from doing this again? Well, no, no, nothing, right? She'll do it again, and again, and again, and again. No. She will. Let's say that no one keeps the documentation. But she didn't lose anything. The, the Talmud says, uh, you see the bold sentence? If so, what did the deceiver lose? Mara, the deceiver, just as an allegory, of course, yes, not really, uh, for the sake of our, of our game. Uh, she didn't lose anything. She put 100 in, she got 100 out. And she'll do it again. She, she will go to 10. Why, why would she do it again if nobody remembers? Because, no, so. No, they say if this wasn't the rule, if the rule was half enough, yeah. she will do it again and again and again because she'll get 50% return on investment. Know that. She doesn't remember, you said. Of course she remembers. She's lying. She knows that she's lying. <laughs> so you changed the premise. No, no, I'm saying, no, the liars know that he lies. So you yeah. have to create a system that eliminates the lie. You have to create a system where you have a contractual something. This developed much later, but even in other contracts, you know. Documents can be faked. You know, it's not all that simple. You can think of, of real life situations in our in our generation that resemble this. It maybe not you know a small a small deposit, but there can be things like that. So what the Talmud says, if you split it half enough, actually the deceiver gets a 50% return on, on investment, which is crazy. There aren't many investments in the world that can give you 50% ROI. So he will do it again and again and again and again, and and he actually incentivizing deceivers to do that. So the other solution would be to keep everything until Eliyahu comes, to keep all the 300 with the, with the, the safekeeper mm -hmm. and not give nothing to anyone. It's, it's only the deceiver that remembers, right? It's only deceive? Each person remembers what they gave. One of those okay. Yeah. No, the stakeholder forgot. Stakeholder was uh, neglected her responsibility. She lost the papers, whatever. That's right. That, that's that's the third opinion. Right. That's a, that she should pay the, the extra hundred and give give each one of them two hundred. But then still, you're even more incentivizing the, the the liars because they will come and lie again. Now they get a hundred percent. Right, because it becomes too dangerous. Now, that's one problem. This is what we call moral hazard. Okay, I will show you some examples in a minute how it looks in our, in our generation. Uh, moral hazard means that uh, if you give people free lunches, as we call this in economics, uh, some people will take abuse of the system. Okay? Uh, this is a graph that shows, this is just, uh, I made it nice, but there are many researchers that show that is, if you increase unemployment support, you give money to people when, they, when they're unemployed, then you actually reduce the motivation to work. And you know, think about it. If, 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 you, if people would get 
Uh, I don't know, $20,000 a month for being unemployed, most people will just say, okay, I'm, I'm getting out of job. I can't get so much money for being unemployed. Why should I do uh, any job? Or for example, this one, uh, in South America, there was a case, um, I forgot the exact, I think this was Ecuador and, and Brazil. When people start to realize in the mid-1990s that chopping off the rainforest actually impacts the entire climate system of all of us, so the big governments of the United States and Canada and Europe, those with their big resources, came to the poor countries in South America and told them, we're willing to pay you for you to stop cutting off your forest. Because you, 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 you don't cut them just because you're evil people. You cut them because that's a source of income for you, because you sell this to IKEA to make furniture. So we will pay you more than IKEA pays you just to keep the forests as they are. <coughs> Sounds great, right? What happened next? The state next to them, I think it was Ecuador, they did not even think about cutting off its forests, started cutting them to get the money from the superpowers. It actually incentivizes governments to do bad things because now you get paid for doing the wrong thing. The same was with nuclear weapons. Uh, after the, especially the United States government started actually paying uh, other countries, like Libya, to stop producing nuclear weapons, that's what they did with Gaddafi. I don't know if you remember this. It, was, it wasn't sanctions, it was the other, the other way. They, they gave him tons of money and privileges and made him like a world-renowned leader for if you just stop producing nuclear uh, weapons and give up all your nuclear arsenal. And, and he did. But this, this incentivizes other countries. They did not think about building a nuclear arsenal to do this just to get money from the United States. And then they changed strategy and now it's sanctions instead of paying them off. But uh, these are like big examples, but you can, think of, you can also see it in, in more small life, real life situations, okay? And now this shows, now remember the fire sugiya that we had? So this is the sugiya with the depositor. So the Mishnah says what you said, that uh, Nina should have been more responsible, she was irresponsible, and she should pay out of pocket $100 and give each one of them 200 So she loses 100 but society also loses 100 because those resources were not supposed to go for the deceiver. Uh, Rabbi Yossi says that, uh, no, sorry, yeah, that, that, he, that he should also pay, but here the loss is bigger. <coughs> and, uh, sorry, 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 <coughs> the depository is uh, Myra, I got confused. Uh, Sharon. So you lose. Each one of you get 100, you lose 100, and society loses 100 because it stays out of the game. It says in the deposit box, it's not part of the economy game anymore. Uh, here, that's what you said, that the guardian pays 100, but society doesn't lose anything. And this is the halacha, by the way, uh, that the depositor should pay. And this is uh, when we split it and uh, actually incentivize people to do this again, okay? So this is one problem of the social welfare system, that if you give people uh, compensation for doing the wrong thing, or not for doing the wrong thing, for being in trouble, uh, you might incentivize people to get into trouble to get this compensation, okay? It starts from good intentions, 
people got unemployed, they got sick, they got, uh, God forbid something happened to them, but then you incentivize people to actually uh, get into those, into those situations. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay. Uh, another problem, the second one, is what we call in economics a free rider. Okay, that's a bus in Tel Aviv from the 1950s. Now think about the bus driver who is supposed to collect money from this influx of people going into the bus. Can you really collect money from everybody? Only if they voluntarily be honest and decent and pay him. It's very easy to what we call in Hebrew, just to bypass. Now, the person doing this, like the person who goes to the bus without paying, like he says to himself, you know, the bus is going to go anyway. Right? It's not like if the, if the bus driver gets payment from only 49 people and not 50, he won't start the engine. He's gone anyway from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I don't care. So I can take a free ride. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not causing damage to anyone. But what's the problem here? I mean, that, that's the, the rational thing to do, right? But what, what can happen if, if that, was, if, if, if that was, was the way? If everybody thought that. Then the bus would not go. If, if no one paid, then there would just, just not, won't be any money for the bus, and for the gas, and, and for everything. Uh, this is what, what we call in economics, we'll see it later, the, the fallacy of composition. That sometimes think an action which is rational for the individual, for one individual, if you composite it, if you multiply it over many people, it's not rational. As a society, it's not rational. And that's a big paradox, both in philosophy and in economics. How can it be that an action which is rational on the individual level is completely irrational on the societal level? It doesn't make sense, but that it is how it is. Okay? Um, I think we'll skip this one. It's less... That's important. Okay, now there's another one. So we had two problems until now, moral hazard and free rider, okay? Um, now there's another thing called information asymmetry, which means that by definition, when we have uh, a national system for welfare uh, support or for social justice or for distribution of, of wealth, uh, by definition, the side giving away the resources will know much less about the receiving than the receiving knows about itself. Okay? So this one says, um, that Rabbi Abba said in the, in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, that we need to praise the cheaters among the beggars. He said, we know that there are some, of, some of those who ask for charity are not really poor. And they ask for charity because it's an easy way for making money. And this allows us not to give charity to every beggar we see on the street because we always have the doubt. So we can say, oh, I didn't, I didn't give him because maybe he's one of the, of the tutors. Otherwise, halakhically, if someone asks for you for charity, you're obligated to give. Uh, if you don't give, you get punished by heaven, whatever. But that's the law. It's not a charity in, in, in Jewish law. It's not just a, 
It's not a nice uh, attribute, something kind you should do voluntarily. It's a law. You need to give charity, period. It's not up to your decision. At least 10%, you can give more. More than that is voluntarily, but you need to give a certain amount, whether you like it or not. But you can rely on, on the safek, on the doubt that not everybody are honest and say, that's why I don't give to anyone on the street. Uh, now, how does that play out in economics? Think about this guy, okay? Now, tr put yourself in the seat of a CEO of an, of an insurance company or just an insurance agent, okay? You do car insurance. This guy comes to you to ask for insurance, and these guys come to you. Who would you give a lower price? To those folks, right? They seem a bit safer. Than, <laughs> like the chances that they're going to have a major accident that's going to cost you a ton of money to fix is very low compared to this guy who's doing crazy stuff on his motorbike. But doesn't it how much that guy is going to pay for his insurance versus how much? Then that's, that's the market. So you said, I'm not going to insure you for less than $5,000 a year. And he says, I'm not paying more than $4,000. And then, your name again? Craig. And then Ryder will say, uh, Brian? Craig. Craig. And then Craig will say, okay, I'm going to do this for four, $450, and then we'll have some equilibrium in the market that the bike riders and insurance, insurance companies will somehow get to a price. But that's a, this is true for everything in the market, for every product, every service, eventually comes to some sort of, of social uh, uh, equilibrium. Uh, but from the first place, you will never give the same price to this guy who is more dangerous uh, as others. But that's an easy uh, example. But what happens when you don't know this? Two people come to you, and they seem just the same. You have no information about them. For example, have, have you done recently uh, a travel insurance to go on a plane? So they ask you there, in the forum, do you have any existing medical situation or something that, uh, they don't know that. You click a box and then if after something happens to you, they realize they can prove that you, you had some medical situation, then they might be able not to pay you. They can go to court and, and all that. But basically, you know if you have a situation or not. They have no idea. This is information asymmetry. There's no symmetry between, symmetry between the knowledge we have. Now go to a welfare system, again, social justice. Someone comes to the government and says, I'm poor, I'm ill, I'm disabled, I need you to support me with resources that you took from other people who are able to work. The government has no way to know for sure if I'm lying or not. If, if I'm lying, that's injustice. That's taking Craig's money by force, by the IRS, and giving it to me even though I don't, I don't deserve it. That's complete injustice. If I am sick and disabled, then this might be a form of justice, or like Craig helping me through the government system. But this is one of the major challenges uh, that we have. And you can see that the Talmud dealt with this challenge like 1,500 years ago. Uh, as Ravuna says, charity collectors examine the level of poverty of one who asks for food, but they do not examine the level of poverty of one who asks for clothing. If a person comes before the charity collectors and all that, you see. Uh, so that's one opinion. And then we have the other opinion of Rav Yehuda said, charity collectors examine the level of poverty of one who asks for clothing, but they do not examine the level of poverty of one who asks for food. OK, just the other way around. 
So these are two opinions. We're not going to go now into the all the halachic concept, but what I do want to show you is that Jewish law and Jewish ancient economists, in a way, already had this in mind, this concept of what we call selective vis-a-vis -vis universal aid. Like, um, for example, in Israel, we have uh, child allowances. I don't know if you have this in America, that you get money for every child you have at home under 18. Do you have something like this? Deduction for it. Okay, so this is at least in Israel, it's, it's across the board. You can be a multi-billionaire, and you still get the same allowance as the poorest person gets, because that's a universal uh, way to give away to create justice. Uh, what would be a selective system? For example, if you if someone loses the ability to work because of an accident or illness, then the government actually there are committees and doctors. And they examine him and see that he's not lying, that it's really a severe condition, and try to do that. Now, what's the advantage and disadvantage of each one of the systems, in, in your opinion? Well, one doesn't cost any money to enforce. The first one? Yeah, the first one does not cost money to enforce. Yeah, you just give money to everybody, and uh, but what, what's the disadvantage, what's the downside? Right, you give money to people who don't need it on the expense of the public. I mean, millionaires in Beverly Hills get child allowances that the poor people pay with their taxes, which doesn't make any sense. Now, what's the upside of the selective system? Okay, and, and the system that pays for people if they lost their job, for example, if, if they got ill and they cannot work anymore, God forbid. Uh, we don't give this kind of support to everybody, right? We actually go and check if they are Really, really, really disabled. So, what's the the upside of this mechanism? What's the, the right? You give money to people who need it. At least, this is what we believe. What is the downside of that? And there's a very big downside. It's very costly. It's costly, right? It, it takes. It costs a lot of money to have this system, and. Withhold money from somebody who Right. That's the second thing. This, this is called type A and type B mistakes. Type A is to give money to someone who doesn't need it. Type B is to not give money to someone who really needs it. And when, when you have an examination system, you will always have these mistakes. Some people will squeeze in even though they, they do not deserve it. And some people will fall through the cracks because they did not have a good lawyer or anything like that. So these are two reasons. There's a third reason for a downside. Uh, at, least in, at least in Israel, it became a very big issue uh, in the last uh, year or so. It can be a very humiliating, humiliating system. I mean, if you have people in their like, 70s or 80s, old people, need to go to committees, and they need to get undressed in front of younger people, and they do all different kinds of very uncomfortable examinations, physical examinations, to make sure that you're really cannot walk or cannot control your needs or things like that, this can be very humiliating and very uncomfortable for people. And some people will actually give up on what they deserve by law because they would say, I'm not going through this process. I'm, I'm not willing to put myself in this. I'd rather starve to death than humiliate myself in, in this way. So I'm not, it, it's complex. There's no right or wrong answer. I'm trying to explain the question or the challenge, okay?
Now there's another thing, the last one, which is what we call deadweight loss. Deadweight loss means the, that there's a reverse proportion between taxes and the motivation of people to actually work. Okay, so here it says, um, Rabiuda says an ordinary shepherd is disqualified uh, for bearing witness. You know, shepherds, the, those guys with the goats, why are they dis disqualified? Because most of them let their goats eat from other people's fields. So they're considered thieves, and a thief cannot, be, cannot tes testify in a court. But we care more about the second part. An ordinary tax collector is fit unless the court determines he's one who collects more than people are obligated to pay. So a tax collector in, in those times, uh, it wasn't like a federal system. So there, there was someone in, in the town who would volunteer, so to speak, to be the tax collector. And he had to bring a certain amount of money to the tax, tax collector above him and above him all the way to the king, okay? Or the emperor in, in those times. And it was, yeah. So, so the problem is they're presuming that the, the shepherd is disqualified and they're presuming huh. that the tax collector is honest. So it's not fair. It's, it's, it, there's no equity there. You can't presume anything. Let them testify and then go to the weight and sufficiency of their evidence rather than Right, but they, they say that... Uh, no, <laughs> no it's, it's, it's a, the question is the burden of proof. Like uh, yeah. a, a shepherd... There's a presumption that this guy is disqualified. disqualified unless he proves otherwise. <laughs> yeah. His burden is to prove he's honest. You have to prove the other guy is dishonest. Exactly. That's the burden of proof. So it's, it's, not, it's not good. Yeah, it's not <laughs> good. It's a lot of, but you know... Apparently, back then, most shepherds were dishonest, and that's why they were disqualified. But, uh, also, but the thing here is that many test collectors were also uh, suspected to be dishonest, because the way they worked is, let's say I have a town of 100 people. I need to get 100 shekels to the tax collector above me. Like one shekel per person, just to make it simple. But it's up to me to decide if I go and take one shekel from each person, or go to the rich guy and take 50, and then I go to another guy and take 40, and then out of 10 I collect from just people on the street that I, that I see. And of course I have, I have authority, I can put, put people in jail, I, I mean I have sanctions that I can, that I can use. Uh, and many tax collectors used to do that, and that's why they were suspected as disqualified, but still the Kumara says that we can believe them to some extent. Now, the story continues, we, we won't go through this whole thing, it just says that the, the rabbi of father, of, uh, the father of Rabbi Zeira, one of the greatest sages in the Talmud, he was a tax collector. But uh, before the one above him would come to town to make like an, an inspection, he would warn everybody and tell them to hide, or he would help, help them actually avoid paying too much taxes. Now the problem with paying too much taxes is not just, it, it's a double injustice. It, it's in, injustice coupled with inefficiency. It's not just because you're not supposed to pay more than you're supposed to pay. That's very simple. Um, th this is the flip side of everything we saw before. Like the other problems we saw were about what you do with the money that you collect from the people and how you do give it out in a way that creates justice and the problems and challenges that we have with that. 
Uh, now we see the other side. Uh, how do you collect money in a, in a just way? So that's one problem. The other thing is about efficiency. Because the higher US taxes, at a certain point, people will say, either they're not going to work at all, because they, they pay more taxes than they, than they actually earn for their own living. Or they would say, uh, let's say you make, also in America, you have like a gradual taxing system, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that everybody pays the same. At the margin. At the margin, right. Yeah. But if, if you earn more money, you pay more than other people. Uh, I mean, eventually, uh, you, you pay more. Now, in, in, in some cases, let's say you're, you're on a tax level that you pay 15% of your income, but now if you make another $1,000, you jump to the next level, and then you pay 20% of your income, then rationally, it doesn't make sense. The, the entire extra income is going to go to taxes. So you'll say, okay, I'm not going to work the extra hours, and I'm just going to stay at home, and I'm going to suffice with the level I'm, I'm at right now. And that's the rational thing on the individual level. But if you remember the fallacy of compilation, when many people do that, we actually lose a lot of, of workforce, a lot of work time. Because people say, we're not going to invest more time in work or more time in producing things for society because most of it is going to go to taxes. Now, there is no real solution to this because you must have those tax levels and they, mu they must be equal across the board. I mean, you can't adjust them to each person individually. But we take as a given that the tax system has this, that way it lost. It has another name, like a more nickname, uh, which is a leaky bucket, like a, like a bucket with the holes, that we know that we collect taxes, but we also lose money because of, uh, of the inefficiency. And that's why sometimes, that may seem like a paradox, sometimes governments raise their income by lowering taxes. Because lo by lowering the taxes. They take less taxes from people, but then people work more, and at the bottom line, they get more uh, eventually. They just take less from more people. It doesn't always work, but sometimes governments try that. And uh, there are different, like you need to do it at the right time with the high levels of, of, of income, and then you can increase. Okay, so just to summarize, uh, at least that's my summary, but then we can open up for, for, for discussion. Uh, so social altruism requires ideological or value-based decision. There is no mathematical solution. As you saw, in debt weight loss, in uh, information asymmetry, all those cases, there are upsides and downsides to each, each uh, system. And there's no, I mean, no economist can actually give you like the solution, like the equation that will solve the problem. It's about what you believe in, your ideology, your culture. And it's important to emphasize this because to some extent, economics is not a science. It's, it's a scientific tool, but at the end of the day, it's about value-based decisions that we make as a, as a society. And uh, there's a tendency to outsource these, these decisions to the experts. So the economists should decide for us what's the best way, way to do. That, that's not their job. Their job is to do what I, what I was trying to do now, to present the situation, to give you the concepts, present the upsides and downsides, and, and now we can have a discussion as a society which, which direction we prefer. And so social altruism requires coercive collection of resources 
aka taxes, which has indirect toll on society. As we said, it causes people to, disincentivizes people to work and other things. On the other hand, social welfare or justice mechanisms have indirect benefits for the investors. Now this is something that we didn't say too much about. I'm gonna just explain this briefly. When we pay taxes to the government and some of that goes to support other people in our, in our environment, we do get uh, utility from that indirectly, but if the government, let's, let's assume that it's efficient and it's working properly. If the government uh, is able, thanks to, to those taxes, to make sure that there are no homeless people on the streets or there's less crime, and less poor people mean also less crime usually, or it, it's able to solve situations that also benefit me as, as just a resident of the city, then it's not entirely, it's not pure altruism. It's actually, I do get something from that. Not directly, like I cannot say that my dollar went to solve this problem, but as a society, it, it, but also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is those in the lowest socioeconomic bracket are more likely to spend their money, right? Is that part of what you're saying also? They're more likely to spend their money. Like, to which enhances the whole society. Oh, you mean like to create uh, growth? Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's also true. That, uh, actually, that's, that's what Keynes said. He was the, probably the most important economist in the 20th century. And he wrote on the background of the 1929 recession that started in, in, uh, in America. And he said you should give money to the people so they can spend it and this way reignite the economy. So, so yes, you, you also increase the, the level of, of economic activity. Um, so let, let's pause here and see if there are questions and stuff. I have another part that takes this and shows how, how it can play out in the inter intergenerational case, but let's, I'm not sure we'll do it today. Let's, uh, yeah. I'm gonna take it back to Israel. I have okay. a lot of family in Israel from both sides of my family, all the way from Frumas, who live in Meir Sharim, to Secular, and everything in between. Okay. And I love them all, I embrace them all. They're all, they're all fabulous, they're all very special to me. But I've heard my more secular family express a great deal of frustration and anger at the inequities of service in the military, that the Frumas uh, have special benefits, special welfare benefits, and there's a sense of frustration. It sounds like there's a lot of infighting about this. Wanted to comment on that and how that plays into life. Well, that's one of the biggest economic issues in Israel. Uh, I've been dealing with this also personally as an activist uh, over the last few years. It's actually more severe than, than how you describe it. So there's the issue of special allowances for the ultra-Orthodox, those who study in a kollel or things like that and, and other benefits. Uh, that they've been able to, to arrange, mostly due to political power. That's the... Because the Haredi uh, parties in the parliament are not big. They're together maybe 10 to 12 seats in the parliament, but they're almost always the, the difference between... Like, the prime minister needs them to have a coalition. Like, 
the, 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 the decisive factor in a coalition. So that's why they have more, more power than their proportional number. But it's not only that. It's that when people get allowances from the government, they also don't work. So you actually lose twice. You lose the money that you give them, but you lose the work they could have done and make more money and pay higher taxes if they had the proper education and, and skills and, and all that. Now, when, the, when this mechanism was put into place, it was in the 1950s, the whole story was a few hundreds of people that Ben-Gurion said, you know, this, this is like a living museum of people from Europe studying Torah all day. Let's give them a few shekels to keep this alive. Uh, no, as a Jewish people, we want to keep this alive, so let's just, it was completely negligible. No one believed they will ever recover and it's, that it will be more than a few hundreds of people. Today, it's tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And then it becomes a huge problem because it's also the fastest growing sector in Israel. And if you look at the Israeli economy, if 20 years from now, 50% of the population will know we have no STEM education, like no science, technology, English, and mathematics, then the startup nation and everything we've created might just fall apart because you need high-skilled workforce to, to maintain this. Uh, now, that's the problem. The Who do you side with? Are you neutral? No, I, I side with gradual uh, evolution, not revolution, of the situation. So gradually, uh, I would say injecting, maybe uh, the right word is uh, incorporating uh, secular co-curriculum studies into creative schools like mathematics and English and that kind of, that kind of things, but not too fast and, and not too violently. You need to do it gradually, uh, and then they'll also just start drafting to the military and get the skills they need, and uh, I, I don't see any other option. I think that's... Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I, I'm neutral on it myself because I, I No, see that's okay. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm free to talk about it because, I mean, look at me. I'm <laughs> they cannot say, oh, this guy is secular, or... No, I'm, I'm part of this society to some extent, but... And I tell them, you know, guys, that's, that's unsustainable. There is no way that the Israeli government is going to be able to pay you allowances when you go to half a million, a million people, a million and a half. We just can't afford it. There's no way. You're going to have to start going to work. And you'll combine, you'll work half day and go study Torah half day. That's fine. But uh, the system is unsustainable. And that's so not sustainable. No, yeah. it's not sustainable. It's one of the major economic and social threats, actually. Uh, in Israel. And, and I'm not saying, I, I do say that at the end of the day, there should be a small amount of people, a few thousands, that get full income from the government for studying Torah. I think as a Jewish say, that's something we should support. The same way we have professors for Greek literature that we support. Why not have Jewish scholars who study Jewish literature, uh, but not hundreds of thousands? It should be like the elite of the elite of the Tamidech Chachamim, of the, of the Rabbanim, that can actually do that. Yeah. One of the things we shared with me earlier tonight was about um, how the, Ga uh, the Gaza economy cannot regenerate itself. Right. So people in Gaza, um, or folks in Jordan, uh, need to do work and, and, and basically support back to Gaza, right? No, so that's the model. Like, people in Jordan go to Europe and work and study back to Jordan, yeah. the same way people in Gaza can go and work in Europe and the United States and study back to their families. That's, that can reignite the economy. There's no way to reignite it internally. So you're living two miles from Gaza um, and there being a strong economy come up in, in Gaza. 
uh, is presumably yeah. twofold. One, that those who are less destitute are going to be li likely to be less violent. Right? right. That they have more to lose, then they will likely be more and peaceful. And there, there's a human dignity to people um, that should have basic rights, right? I mean, right. And, and that's the first one. Then the second. And there's also, if, if Gaza is going to boom economically, this will have this will help our economy as well. Like we're going to have trade with each other, and uh... so, so my, I guess my question is a little bit of a spiritual, uh, educational, uh, economic one, which is what would it look like to have sort of a spiritual revolution of a higher consciousness of how we thought about the gain of others, and I wonder how you sort of think about this question. Of uh, there seems to be, I don't want to call it human nature because that sounds really definitive, but some sense that. I need others to lose. There's a very limited pie in the world. I need others to lose for me to win, especially those I perceive to be my enemies or my opposition. What would it look like for there to be some evolution? And how do we kind of achieve this state of empathy um, and the sense of interconnectivity of the marketplace to get I, I, to reach that complex? Like, what's the work we need to be doing? Actually, I, I'll say two things. And, and Craig, you want to chime in? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say the model the model that I'm sure you want to refute was refuted in the early 1800s. There's something called the Ricardian Law of Comparative Advantage that shows you can have two people and one can be absolutely superior to the other in every respect and they can still both gain by specializing in exchange. Right. No. That, that just blows away this competitive, you know, there's a pie and we're going to fight over the pie, or, or yeah. I'm really superior and you're just dirt, you know, so yeah. I, you have nothing to give me. Right. This, what, you, what you described is what, what's called in popular language uh, a zero-sum zero game. Right. It's either I take everything or you, you take everything. This ties back to Malthus. He was a Christian priest, one of the first economists, so to say. And uh, he, he made a projection. He said that the population grows in a... Exponential. exponential. Right, that's the English term. Like, it grows like this, but the resources grow in a linear, so, uh, like, in a, in a straight line. At a certain point, there will be too many people and not enough resources, and there will be plagues and wars and, and huge devastation. Now, he was right to some extent, but he did not foresee the Industrial Revolution, definitely not the knowledge of information revolution and what we see today. I mean, today, we don't have a food problem in the world. We have more than enough food to feed everybody. We have a problem of how this food is being distributed, distribution. It's not about resources. We have enough energy, enough food, enough medical devices, and enough of everything, more than enough. It's just about how we distribute, and, and don't, it's about efficiency. So. Before we talk about spiritual revolutions, I think just giving people the basic knowledge that every economist in the world, everyone who deals with the science of economics would refute this sense of zero-sum game. It would tell you that if people in Gaza have better lives, you will have better lives. Forget peace and bigger deals. They will have more money. They will buy in your shops. You will have more money. You'll buy more in their shops. And putting also environment aside, let's say it's also sustainable environmentally. Uh, this is, has been proven in any, any way possible. Uh, I think, going on to the spiritual side, and that's where people 
one of the proofs that people are not rational, sometimes we get more benefit from seeing our enemies suffer than having benefit for us. Like, sometimes people will, are willing to lose money or, or lose resources or whatever, lose utility, just to see someone else suffering more than they do, which is completely crazy and irrational. But that's something, uh, I, I don't have a magic wand you know, like to take this thing out of people's hearts. Uh, it's something we can you know, try and talk, to, talk about and, and educate people about. But, uh, so it has you know, two levels, the economic and spiritual. Well, Anti-Semitism comes from the same syndrome. Uh, right. The, the, the notion is, you know, I haven't achieved what I wanted in life. It must be his fault. Could be. Uh, no, take it. If I take it back to the Gaza situation, uh, we actually suffer from the, the deterioration of the situation inside Gaza. One example from the environmental perspective, uh, you know, if, if Gaza is here, then we have Ashkelon and then Ashdod, two Israeli cities to the north of Gaza, on, on the beach of the Mediterranean Sea. In each one of those big cities, we have big desalination factories. Uh, as you know, Israel is not, doesn't have too much rainfall, and uh, we solved it technolo technologically with uh, desalination factories. Now, many Israelis are not aware of the fact, and I'm sure that Americans are completely not aware of the fact, that those two factories are now not working most of the year. Because what happens is that because Gaza doesn't have enough electricity, uh, they shut down their uh, sewage treatment factories. You know, the, the factory is to treat the sewage before it goes to the ocean to make it to purify uh, the wastewater. So they just pour the sewage as is 100 million cubic meters of, of, of complete sewage to the sea every day, every day. That's, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of millions of, of cubic meters of, of uh, uh, polluted water. And the Mediterranean Sea is built in a way that it has an ongoing circulation of water uh, against the, the direction of the clock, which means that what you put in the sea in Gaza gets to the beach of Ashkelon a day later, and two days later to the beach of Ashdod. And, uh, and the desalination factories had to shut down because they were taking polluted water from the sea. They, they, you can desalinate the salt, but you cannot purify the sewage, so they had to shut down. Well, yes, but they were built for, uh, for salt, not for sewage. Yeah, you, you can purify, you know, Israel has the technology to purify everything you want into pure water. We can do that. It's a, it's a question of uh, energy and costs. But uh, those factories specifically were not for sewage, they were for salt. So uh, you, can't, you can't say, oh, I want my enemy to suffer because at the end of the day you get it in your backyard uh, in a way. There's no sterilization between populations. It, it doesn't work. We have a president that's declared he's a nationalist because everybody should take care of themselves. Well, <laughs> he may have missed the fact that we're 2018 and not yeah. 1700. Yeah. It, it, was, it may have been true, like in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, uh, when really like Australia had nothing to do with Canada, yeah. except for the queen, who was like the overarching emperor, empress. But today, you just can't say that. Like the, it was so interconnected, and the, the implications of carbon gas being pumped here on the rainfall in Israel 
is pretty much proven. So there's nothing we can, uh, like we have to solve this together in, in a way. Um, okay, any last questions or comments? Gaza relationships. Uh, so as I thought, I'm learning to speak Arabic. I cannot have a conversation yet. I can. I think one of the big faults of my government is that they do not teach us Arabic. I mean, they teach us Arabic in school, but it's a very, it's a certain type of Arabic which is not really useful, and you don't really get to a level that you can talk. You can understand a few words. You can read the signs, but. You cannot have a conversation. Uh, and that's completely crazy, like to live in the Middle East and not speak Arabic. It just, it's, it's even dangerous. I mean, forget peace, it's just dangerous. Uh, so I'm, I'm learning, but uh, paradoxically, what happened is that people my age in Gaza don't speak Hebrew anymore. I mean, their parents speak Hebrew because they, they used to work in Israel, but they don't work in Israel anymore because the, the border is shut. So we are Israelis and Arabs living in the Middle East, having a conversation in fragmented English, or what, what we think is English, with our lousy accents. And uh, so we lose a lot in translation. It's not easy, but right now that's the only, only tool we have. And uh, what we do right now, we try to have direct conversations with people inside Gaza who are not part of Hamas, like, I, I will not talk to someone at Hamas. I, I, will, not I will not give legit legitimacy to this organization. It's a terrorist organization that harms my people and also their people. I mean, uh, most of the people killed by Hamas are not Israelis, are people in Gaza. That they kill because of political reasons, like any di dictatorship. You know, it's the, and then they used all this trick in the book. You know, if you have a di dictatorship, the best way to maintain it is to find an external enemy and, and channel the anger of the masses like, it's all the fault of Israel. So that's how they maintain their, their regime. But we do talk to people who are not involved with Hamas, uh, who want a better future for the area. I, I do have to say honestly that the word peace does not come up too often. People have no, I mean, the level, level of trust is so low in this concept that if you say the word peace right now, it's, uh, and, and people both from Israel and from the Palestinian side say this, that they do not want to hear the word peace. It, it, they actually, they've been traumatized by the peace process. In Hebrew, we have this saying, uh, shalom. Since, the, since the peace broke up, uh, that, that's how people relate to this. But we do talk about stabilization, normalization, creating some sort of, of direct connections. So we have my group on the Gaza border talking to Arab people inside Gaza, only on video conferencing. Uh, here and there we can meet them when they go, come to Israel. Sometimes they get permits. So I met one of them in Jerusalem, but usually it's on phone conversations or video conference because uh, there's no other way. Uh, there's a parallel project, a few projects, but one of them that I know personally, in Gush Etzion, which has been one of the, unfortunately, one of the highest uh, focal, focal points of terrorism in the last uh, two years, there's a farm there which is a joint farm of Arabs and settlers. Not only Jews, but actually settlers who live in, Ju in Judea and Samaria. And they work together and they do dialogue and they get lots of groups. They have perfect English and they share their story. And, and, and I think that the main, 
So when I told about, about this to Shmuley, so he, he told me that, okay, so, so you're actually willing to accept or, or to discuss the, the Arab narrative. So I told him that the biggest mistake would be to start discussing narratives. Because if you go to history, and like, oh, your, your grandparents did to my gra grandparents this, and you did them that. It's an endless story of, of violence and, and uh, agony that you'll never find a way out of that. So what we say is that we live it right here, right now. We need to be concrete. No one, none of us is going anywhere. Uh, I mean, I think most Arabs have realized that Israel is not going anywhere. It's a fact of life. Most Jews have realized that the Arabs are not going anywhere. They're going to stay here. And, and we need to find a way to make it work for everybody. Uh, at least to stabilize it, have a long-term ceasefire, and then maybe the next generation that will live in a different climate could actually move and take an, uh, another step. So, uh, no, to, to paraphrase, one of the there's a famous organization in Israel called Peace Now. I guess you heard about it. Mm -hmm. So, what I say is peace, not right now. Like. Uh, Trying to do those, that kind of things too fast can actually be counterproductive to what you're trying to achieve. And um, so that's basically how we, how we operate. I yeah. have a hypothetical question for you. One of my cousins in Israel who is a, a, um, a, 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 a um, computer scientist, he does very well for himself, got a good salary. He's in a 60% tax bracket. Yeah, Israel has those tax right. <laughs> yeah. I realize that an enormous amount of the budget goes to defense and security for survival. I understand that it's yeah. a necessary thing that Israel has to do just to make, create safety for its citizens. But this is why I say it's a hypothetical question. If, assuming that there was a much more peaceful situation where the amount of the, the budget would be we could reduce cut the, for yeah. defense and the military, do you see Israel more as a socialist economy or more of a um, uh, America-type uh, capitalist economy? Or is, is, that a, is that difficult to answer? You see, you're asking how it is right now or, or how, what I think will be in the future? Yeah, given the hypothetical situation, the situation may, may improve. I think it, it won't be like America uh, in that sense. Uh, you know, we have... Much more ethnical and, and, and the national identity is much stronger than America, and people do want to help one another. Uh, on the other hand, most Israelis are traumatized by the socialist regime we had, which was very inefficient and very corrupted. Uh, we didn't talk about that at all, but once you give the government the power to collect as much money as it wants from the people, then you also open up the, the option for people to use this money in inappropriate ways. I mean, forget uh, not giving to the right person. I'm talking about taking money to their own pockets or uh, stealing from the public. Uh, so it's very dangerous to, to put too much, too much money in, in one place. Um, so I think it will be something in the middle, be like uh, some sort of a social democracy, uh, um, soci uh, yeah, socialist democracy, uh, that, that's how we say it, social democracy. Uh, which gives a safety net to all citizens, but also enables and encourages uh, free entrepreneurship. But the, one last thing I want to say in this context, and then we'll have to conclude, is that without the huge investment in security, Israel would probably not have been the startup nation that it is. 
because most of the high-tech companies, definitely the first ones, like Checkpoint and uh, all the big names that you know, they started from the military. These were people who were trained by the Israeli Defense Forces and then went out to the civilian market and took the ideas and methods and built it into multi-billion companies in uh, cybersecurity and in different defense mechanisms. And uh, so this, this was actually the, the main catalyst for the Israeli economy. Uh, so the, the gain on the investment is actually higher than the investment. I do hope that one day we could reduce the taxes and reduce the army, but it's not just a, just a waste of money. It, it actually produces uh, resources. Like it, it just it trains people in a very good way. I think we'll conclude. Okay. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.